Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information. My name is Jessica Nesham, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today are Norman Pillsbury, who is a clinical pharmacist at HCA Flora Ocala Hospital, and Nikki I, who is a pain specialist at Avera McKinnon Hospital in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Let's get started talking about today's topic, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS. So to start us off, Nikki, why don't you tell us what ERAS is? All right. Well, thank you, Jess. I appreciate that. Um, first and foremost, ERAS was uh, such a up-and-coming new technology, per se, of, of what different institutions were doing. And basically, it was uh, developed by a professor from Denmark in the 1990s when they started talking about it. And Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, refers to patient-centered, evidence-based, multidisciplinary team that developed pathways for a surgical specialty and facility culture to reduce the patient's surgical stress response, optimize their physiologic function, and to facilitate recovery. So what in the world does that mean? Well, surgical protocols that streamline patients' ability to have shortened length of stay, early mobility and recovery, and improve outcomes and overall experiences. So this was such an interesting concept as it came here to our institution. And we're like, hey, how can we jump on board? Well, um, by doing different research and whatnot, you know, you find this Denmark physician that started this in the 1990s. He actually first uh, formed his society in 2001. So it took him 11 years to really kind of get this up and rolling after he had this amazing concept of multimodal surgical care. And so they developed the ERAS study group. And in 2005, that ERAS study group actually published their first evidence-based protocol for patients undergoing colorectal surgery. It has since exploded and further uh, expanded out to different subsidiaries. And in 2010, the ERAS society was officially registered as a not-for-profit medical society, and that was in Sweden. In 2011 to present day, multiple societies across the nation have developed multiple publications for protocols and guidelines and developed for different specific surgeries. So really the key principles of the ERAS protocol include preoperative counseling, preoperative nutrition, avoidance of perioperative fasting, and carbohydrate loading up to two hours preoperatively, standardizing anesthetic and analgesic regimens, Uh, which we'll talk about here shortly with Norm, that includes epidural and non-opioid analgesia and early mobilization. Awesome. Thank you for that overview. So can you now talk to us about kind of an overview to this process? What exactly does it look like for you or across other institutions? Norm, do you want to get us started? Sure. These pathways described by Dr. I form a continuum as the patient moves from home through pre-admission, pre-hospital, preoperative, intraoperative, postoperative phases, and then back home again. Prior to hospitalization, education is provided to the patient and family. A pain management plan is developed. The patient is optimized. And some patients undergo prehabilitation. The preoperative phase includes limited fasting, 
and might include a light meal up to six hours pre-op. A carbohydrate beverage is provided up to two hours pre-op. Discharge planning is done and includes education and a home medication plan. Initial multimodal medications are administered and or regional block placement is performed. Moving into the intraoperative phase, tubes and drains are avoided. Normal volemia, normal thermia, and normal glycemia are maintained. Opioid sparing multimodal analgesia is used and prophylaxis against nausea and vomiting is provided. Shorter incisions are utilized. A laparoscopic approach is used when possible. Postoperatively, early mobilization and early nutrition are provided. IV fluids are either not used at all or used judiciously. There's an early transition to oral pain medications. Education is again provided to the patient and family. Multimodal analgesia is used for pain and nausea and vomiting are managed. And as the patient moves back to the home, they're encouraged to seek assistance for symptoms or changes in status. Follow-up appointments are attended and the patient may participate in therapy and or rehabilitation. And finally, quality measures are analyzed and patient surveys are conducted to permit continuous quality improvement. That's a lot of stuff. And I know you've both talked to us about how this can standardize and hopefully streamline some of this. But what are some of the other clinical benefits of ERAS? Well, the patient, the institution, and society are all benefited by ERAS. There's a reduction in postoperative complications or morbidity. Patients report or experience improvement in quality of life. Patients have less pain, less ileus, and less postoperative fatigue. Organ function decline is prevented and or the return of organ function is accelerated. Patient participation in their own care is an integral part of this, and that alone is a factor in the reduction of the duration of hospitalization. Benefits for the institution uh, result from uh, ERAS requiring collaboration between many different disciplines. This team approach leads to improved team spirit. This leads to better risk management and better quality of care. The reduction in length of stay benefits the hospital in reducing hospital-acquired infections and mortality. And the reduced hospital stay improves the institution's financial performance and improves the use of hospital resources. Society is benefited because the number of days that patients require sick leave is reduced. And because ERAS is helping to battle the opioid epidemic, by minimizing the need for opioid prescriptions and post-surgical patients. So Norm, you mentioned that a team-based approach is essential to successful ERAS. So can you talk to us about what the role of the pharmacist is within that team? Sure, the, the pharmacist or another member of the team in some settings will perform a medication reconciliation during the pre-admission pre-hospital period the pharmacist will use this information to determine which medications must be held prior to surgery and when to provide the last dose of each of the patient's medications to avoid complications and interactions with the medications and contrast agents that are scheduled for the case. Education is provided to the patient. Preoperatively, the pharmacist will review the multimodal medication plan to optimize it for each patient based upon medication histories, medication allergies, lab results, and the patient's condition. 
the pharmacist will, collaborating with a surgical team, provide the medications needed for the case and be available for consultation regarding dosing and timing of the agents used. Postoperatively, the pharmacist will optimize the multimodal pain regimen and the antiemetics for each patient and provide those medications. The pharmacist or another member of the team in some settings will perform a medication reconciliation prior to discharge. Education will be provided to the patient to advise them how their medication regimen has changed because of the surgery, which medications to continue, which medications to stop. A pharmacist may even follow up with the patient after discharge to aid about medication administration, timing, dosing, cost and availability issues, or other related concerns. So I know medications are a big and integral part of this. So can you talk a little bit about which specific medications play a role in ERAS? Uh, sure. Um, acetaminophen, uh, the NSAIDs, and here celecoxib is preferred as its use results in less platelet inhibition and a lower potential for bleeding. The gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin. The tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline and nortriptyline, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, including duloxetine and venlafaxine, the anticonvulsants, carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine, skeletal muscle relaxants, including methylcarbamol, cyclobenzaprine, carisoprodol, baclofen, tizanidine, diazepam. Ketamine, local and or regional anesthesia, lidocaine, and the alpha-2 agonists clonidine and dexmedetomidine. Use of these will vary from institution to institution and surgery type to surgery type. But what the order sets all have in common is that they're designed to minimize the need for opioids in PACU or recovery. That's awesome to hear about so many non-opioid medication options for this. Nikki, did you notice anything different in your practice or are you using a lot of those same medications? Um, actually, I think Norm covered a, a plethora of medications. You know, in our institution, we do a lot of the use of Xperl or liposomal bupivacaine. Um, that also has been um, controversial, I would say, in the world of institutions and cost. Um, I think it's free for all at my institution and everybody gets it. Um, but I understand that if it's not on formulary at specific institutions. But I tell you what, we've done a significant amount of in-servicing with the use of XPRL in our physicians, um, as far as you know, all of us know that it's just the, as much the properties of the drug as well as the infiltration of the drug. So I'm not, Norm didn't talk a lot about that, but I just wanted to hit on it that we typically tend to use a, a, an abundant amount of liposomal bupivacaine at our institution. Thank you. Okay, so we've heard a lot about all of the benefits of ERAS. Are there any limitations to this? Well, that brings up a really uh, interesting point, um, Jess, in the fact that I spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and at our institution when we started this, you know, uh, seven or eight years ago, we implemented the ERAS protocols into our hospital. And boy, we're I think I, I had uh, 
no idea what it, it would entail. So the things that I could come up with when thinking about what, what limitations exist, I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's the time it takes to implement it, to get all of your teams together. Um, it's, do you have the resources? Do you have this dedicated staff to work on protocols, to provide the educations, to provide the imp- implementation and ensure that it goes smoothly? Um, another big limitation that I kind of came up with is acceptability. I mean, like, does your staff even believe in this particular protocol and that it's going to help these patients postoperatively? I think the acceptance of something as big as this is imperative when you're taking care of patients because your nursing staff are on the front line. And if they can get that uh, particular scripting to these patients to tell them, we've got this plan for you. We've seen great success with it. I think it also sets the patient up for more of a success um, if your staff believes in it and understands why we're doing it. Another big ticket is organizational support. Does your facility even support you starting this and why? Do you have the backing to go to your administration and say, I think we need this for X, Y, and Z to support the data and, and why we do it? You know, I talked a little bit about the staff in general. Do we have the staff? This day and age, there's an extreme amount of staff turnover. Um, There's a huge undertaking and increased nursing tasks that go along with implementing a protocol such as this. Administration of medications, you're documenting multiple outcomes, you know, nursing notes. It's, It's a lot on the staff right away as we start to implement this. Do you have an, an electronic medical record support that can help you document these things and streamline it a little bit for you? You definitely have to have a highly functioning EMR so you can capture these data, the data that's being provided and drive those clinical judgments. It also is really detrimental to our outcomes in the documentation piece. So we can pull those data, pull those pieces of data to determine is what we're doing appropriate and is it providing what it should. Uh, The standardization of protocols, I can't tell you the amount of meetings I went to to get our protocols standardized so that every piece of the team all agreed on it. Um, You know, from our institution, we we picked another highly um, uh, recognized institution's protocols and went off of that. So it's a very big group consensus on the medications, the dosing forms, how we're going to administer them, you know, from, from our facility, we're not extremely huge. We had to undertake the whole lidocaine and ketamine continuous infusions. Yes, we start them intra-op and we move them into the post-operative PACU setting. However, it stopped there. So do we continue it out on the floor? How much extra education is that going to be? And lastly, it's the funds. Does your facility have the funds to actually implement this? It is a significant cost to the institution up front, but hopefully in the end all, if we do tend to um, improve patient outcomes and improve or uh, excuse me, shorten the length of stay, that should in the back end make up for those funds up front. Thank you for outlining a lot of those limitations. I definitely agree that time and resources are going to be one of the biggest struggles. That's something that we have encountered here as well. Um, But assuming that you have backing and the support of your institution, what do you do or what are kind of your pearls for getting this going or implementing ERAS into your practice? I think that was probably one of the most challenging pieces, Jess. You know, again, you sit on multiple different meetings and you hear from the physician side, you hear from the nursing side, you hear from the intraoperative, postoperative, uh, surgical side. It, 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 
is imperative that you have a multidisciplinary approach. You have to have those people that are good at the preoperative, the intraoperative, and the postoperative management of a patient. So you need to have your providers, your nursing staff, your pharmacists, other, other ancillary staff, such as PT or OT, your techs intraoperatively. It's, it's just so crazy the amount of staff that go into this one decision-making and having all the same philosophies. Um, the consensus is also of what is the need of the institution? Every single person on this multidisciplinary team must have the same consensus of what does our institution need and how can we brainstorm ideas to implement it? How does it fit at your institution? Sure, there's multiple different uh, ERAS protocols that exist out there from big institutions to little institutions, but again, how does it fit well with the current institution that you are at? Again, I had said previously, you know, at our institution, when we started brainstorming our ideas and getting these meetings together between the providers who ultimately run the ship, you have anesthesia and nursing available. These ideas were coming so abundantly. It was just how in the heck were we going to put it all together and, and utilize the staff and the resources we have here to implement it. And again, alongside that is the funding piece. Where are we going to get the funding to move forward? So first and foremost, I say, have that multidisciplinary approach, sit down, recognize what your institution needs, and then move forward. Secondly, I, I highly suggest utilizing a protocol that you develop for the, the whole standardized process. Norman talked a lot about the preoperative, the intraoperative, and the postoperative options available. I mean, as far as to carb loading, um, how much fluid intake is needed, managing the glucose levels, all of those are very, very important in the world of ERAS. So from our standpoint as pharmacists, we can have a hand in all of that. From my standpoint as a pain pharmacist, I had a big ticket into the intra-op and post-operative standardization of our multimodal regimen that we created. Um, I worked hand-in-hand -hand with the anesthesiologist to talk about uh, loading the patients with ketamine and lidocaine intra-op, utilizing those TAP blocks for specific gynecologic um, surgeries or breast surgeries, uh, colorectal, making sure that you, you could consider um, using, uh, if your institution allows it, the liposomal bupivacaine for specific long-acting help with the sodium channel blockade. We did a, a very basic intra-op, post-op, multimodal regimen consisting of the intra-op ketamine and lidocaine into PACU, but then we went along the lines of everything Norman had talked about in utilizing your scheduled Tylenol, your schedule and said using diazepam actually here at our institution as first line agent for what we would consider pain um, and having a mild and moderate opioid available. Uh, making sure you have all of your stool softener agents available uh, to help with that. And then again, along with that protocol comes the documentation of every one of those pieces of the puzzle that get fit, put together. So nursing uh, spent a significant amount of time streamlining their tasks and documentation that go along with the ERAS protocols. I think the biggest hurdle that we had when implementing was the education to the staff. How do you bundle that all into one piece that hits every piece of the person that is involved in ERAS. And I think that was a, a big major part and took probably the longest amount of time to get going on our ERAS protocol. You have to do, again, all of your staff educations from 
the ancillary staff to the frontline players and as well as patients. You know, patients have to buy into this particular systemic approach or clinical approach to medicine as well. So having that discussion with the patients when they come to see the provider and having realistic expectations as they move through the entire process. And lastly, you know, implementing this is communicating it. How in the world do we communicate to everybody that we're going to do this and why are we going to do this? You do it alongside of the education to the staff, but there are also many barriers that come uh, to light when you're trying to communicate why we're doing stuff. You're going to have differing opinions. Um, not every piece of the pers- the people involved and the staff involved within the institution are going to be in the whole talkings up front. So there are going to be multiple different barriers and hurdles that you're going to have to overcome in order to implement this particular piece of the puzzle into these surgical patients. Norm, do you have anything to add to that? No, just that, um, well, you used the word plethora, so I'll use it again here. There's a plethora of primary literature out there on ERAS. You can look at the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and see what they recommend for breast reconstruction. You can look at the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons and see what they recommend for colorectal surgery. So this has been around long enough now that nobody has to invent any of these processes. We can just adopt the best practices that have already been established. Okay. Well, I want to thank our guests, Norman and Nikki, for a great topic and discussion today. For our ASHP members, you can earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. You will need to claim your CE credit before it expires two years after this episode is published. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious disease, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect Community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.